I believe that every one of us has some sort of ideal for how our life will turn out. Even from an early age, we have some, some dream maybe about what sort of house we're going to live in when we grow up, or what sort of car we'll drive, or what sort of job we'll have. Probably in our dreams, it's probably a job that uh, compensates us very well financially, but it's also quite fulfilling. As we grow up, we may also have dreams about the type of person we want to marry, or about the way that we want our kids to turn out, or how many kids we want to have. As we grow up, we have these dreams about life. But we also know that as we grow older, that we face various challenges in life that may divert us from the course of really fulfilling those dreams and ideals. And there may even come a point in our lives when we look back a few years and realize, you know what, the place I am today it has very little to do with what my dream was a long time ago. There's, there's a significant disconnect between our reality and our ideal. And if I've learned one thing during my two years as pastor here at Freedom's Church is this, that pretty much every person that you'll ever meet is dealing with some very significant challenges in their lives. And if they aren't dealing with big challenges right now, they probably have sometime in the recent past, or they will sometime in the near future. Pretty much all of us deal with challenges at times. Sometimes those challenges are really big and seem debilitating, other times those challenges are smaller, but they still cause us some struggles in our lives. And these challenges that I'm talking about are things that if we were creating an ideal roadmap for the way that our lives will go, they are things that we probably, or maybe even definitely, would not plan in to the roadmap of our lives. For instance, when you're young, you'll never find someone who says, you know what, I'm going to get cancer when I'm 41 years old. You'll never find anyone who says, I'm going to get fired when I'm 57 and I won't be able to find another job and I'll be forced to take early retirement, which I don't want to do. You won't meet anyone who says, you know what, by age 45 I'm going to be divorced twice. Or when I'm 35 years old, I'm going to be lonely, all alone, and depressed. You won't find people who, whose dream is to be in a dead-end job or to be unemployed and not be able to find any employment. You won't find people who want to be physically unable to have children. I mean, there are any number of things. We could go on and on listing those undesirable bumps in the road or even major crises um, that, that divert us from our dreams. You won't find people who, who want those things to happen, but the reality is that we do face those things that seem to derail us from plan A in our lives. So the question for us to consider is how do we respond? What do we do when plan A seems to fall apart and we have to move on to plan B or plan C or plan D or plan E? What do we do in those times? And, and not only do these challenges, these, these bumps in the road and these crises create problems with our dreams, but they also can wreak havoc in our walk with God because they can cause us to wonder, where is God in this whole thing? Why, if God is so loving and so powerful, is he allowing this to happen this way? Why doesn't he make things a little bit easier or change these circumstances so that I don't have to go through these, these difficulties and the, these heartaches I'm going through? These are very real, very hard questions. And that's why over the next five weeks, we are starting a series called Plan B. Um, plan B is the idea of, you know what, we have our, our ideal, our plan A for our lives, but then something interrupts that plan A and we're forced into what, from our perspective, is a plan B. Even though it may not, it isn't a, a plan B from God's perspective because God is always in control. Nothing is going to surprise him that happens to us. 
But from our perspective, so many things in our life sure do feel like some sort of plan B or plan C or even plan Z. So how do we deal with these things? Over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the life of Joseph. Uh, Joseph is an Old Testament figure from the book of Genesis. Uh, This Joseph is not the same Joseph who is the father of Jesus, married to Mary. Um, It's not that Joseph. You have to rewind many hundreds of years to get to the Joseph that we are talking about. As I said, he's in Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible. Let me give you a little bit of um, family history about who Joseph is. In ancient Israel, you have Abraham, who is seen as really the father of Israel. You have Abraham. He has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. And then one of Jacob's sons is Joseph. And that is the Joseph that we are going to be looking at in the next few weeks. And Joseph, if you read his life story from Genesis 37 through Genesis 50, which is what we're going to be looking at in the next five weeks, if you look at his life story, it is absolutely amazing in terms of the ups and downs he faces. Probably higher highs than most of us will ever experience in our lives. But also lower, low, lower lows and, and uncertainties and questions and devastation than many of us will ever face. So we're going to be looking at the life of Joseph. And today we're starting in Genesis chapter 37. And so I invite you to turn in the Bible uh, to Genesis 37 if you'd like to follow along. But didn't bring a Bible, you can uh, grab one from the pew or the chair in front of you. So we're going to be starting our study of Joseph in Genesis 37. When we talk about encountering a plan B in our life, oftentimes that plan B starts with some dream or some ideal that doesn't turn out the way that we want it to. That we're forced uh, to abandon plan A and to move on to some other plan that we weren't expecting. And that's what we encounter with Joseph here in Genesis 37. He is beginning to experience what could be called a plan B, at least from his perspective. It's not from God's perspective, but from his perspective, by the end of what we're looking at this morning, it's probably going to seem pretty hopeless, not what he planned. But as we prepare our hearts to look at this passage and to study how we can live in light of the plan Bs in our life, will you please pray with me? Our Father, this, this is a challenging topic. Uh, we recognize that we all have heartaches in our life. We all have things that are definitely not the way we would have planned it if we could plan out our ideal lives. But Lord, we recognize that these challenges are realities in our life. And I pray that as we are gathered together this morning, as we are looking at this topic in the next five weeks, that you will enable us to see clearly that you are in control and also that, you will see clear, that we will see clearly how we ought to respond in those times when our plans and our ideals don't work out the way we think they should. So please guide us even this morning, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at this passage in three different parts. Um, First of all, we're going to look at the first 12 verses, or first 11 verses, beginning in uh, verse 1 of Genesis 37. There it says that Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah, and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel, Israel in this context is, is another name for, Joseph, or for Jacob. He has two different names, Jacob, Israel, same person. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because Joseph had been born to Israel in his old age. And he made a richly ornament, ornamented robe for Joseph. 
When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, Listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you actually intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? They hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he had told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept this matter in mind. As I said, we're going to look at this passage in three different parts. The first thing, as we're talking about dreams uh, that someone has and then how they can be dashed, the first thing we see about Joseph here is that he had a very bright future. At least so it seemed at first. Uh, First of all, we see in this passage that it seemed like he had preferred status with his father. You know, when you think about a preferred status, think, for instance, of preferred status with airlines. How if you have preferred status with an airline, whether it's because you pay extra money for that status or maybe it's because you're a frequent flyer, that preferred status gives you some special privileges. Uh, For instance, you may be able to skip right to the front of the line at the checkout counter or at the check-in counter rather than having to wait 20 minutes while everyone else goes in front of you. Preferred status may let you board early or be bumped up to first class more easily. Preferred status gives you a lot of privileges that without preferred status you couldn't have. And that preferred status is what Joseph had in this passage. We see it first of all in how his father loved him so much. It says in verse 3 that Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Now, this definitely is not good parenting advice on favoring one child over another. It, it doesn't fly, don't, or it doesn't work very well. Don't try to do this. But Jacob's family is a very, very dysfunctional family. Uh, we see inklings of that in this passage today. If you read the chapters before Genesis 37, you see there's a lot of dysfunction in this family. And, and this dysfunction leads Jacob to love Joseph more than any of his other brothers. Let me give you a little bit of background on why this is. See, many years before, Jacob had been in love with this woman, Rachel. Rachel just caught his eye the first time he saw him. You may, you know, that feeling of seeing someone, they just capture your heart. You want nothing else than to be with them. And that's the way it was for Jacob and Rachel. Jacob went to Rachel's father, Laban, and asked for Rachel's hand in marriage. And Laban said, okay, you can have it. But then Laban tricked Jacob. You see, Laban had an older daughter who was older than Rachel. This older daughter was named Leah. And when it came to the wedding night, Laban tricked Jacob into marrying Leah instead of Rachel. Now, as you can imagine, Jacob was not happy about this at all. He still loved Rachel so much, but suddenly Leah is his wife unexpectedly. He went to Laban and said, look, well, you can imagine what he said. They came to a deal, and Laban said, okay, now I'll give you Rachel as uh, as a wife as well. And so Jacob married Rachel. He had two different wives. They were sisters. All the while, he loved Rachel much more than he loved Leah or anyone else. And then, as years passed, 
Jacob had a handful of sons. He had ten sons to be exact, but none of them came from Rachel. Rachel at that point was unable to have children. But one day, Rachel became pregnant and she gave birth to a son who they named Joseph. And at that point, the same love that Jacob had for Rachel, he also gave to Joseph. Preferential treatment to Joseph, preferred status. He loved Joseph more than he loved any of his other sons. So he had preferred status from his father, and, and his father showed that love in one instance by giving him a very special coat or a, specially ro- a special robe. Here in the New International Version, it says that it's a richly ornamented robe. Uh, we may be familiar with this in our culture today as Joseph's amazing Technicolor dream coat uh, after Andrew Lloyd Webber's famous musical by that name. Um, it's a musical that's based um, relatively closely on the life of Joseph. But this coat that Joseph had was very special. Uh, odds are good it went down to his wrists and to his ankles. It was probably made of many colors, uh, just to really stand out among other coats in this culture. Um, this type of coat would be worn by uh, rich travelers or by leaders in the country. It might have multiple uh, rectangles, or maybe made out of rectangles, of multiple different colors. And these rectangles of many different colors would be very expensive because of the dyes used to make them. But anyway, this coat was given from Jacob to Joseph just as a sign of his love. And so you see that, that Joseph was given very preferred treatment by his father, which bothered very well for him because Jacob was a very, very wealthy man with many servants and much livestock. Joseph's future also looked bright because he had God's stamp of approval. And this came through two different dreams that he had. Dreams in that culture were interpreted as being directly from God, as signs from God. And Joseph had two different dreams, both of which seemed to show show Joseph having preeminence over the rest of his family and how they're all bowing down to him as he is exalted. And we don't know yet fully in this passage how those dreams are going to be lived, lived out, but it definitely shows that Joseph not only has his father's stamp of approval, but also God's stamp of approval. And so Joseph's future looks really bright. And you can imagine what it would be like to be Joseph, of, you know, things are going well for him. Probably even because of his preferred status, he probably didn't have to work in the fields as much anymore. He was probably elevated more to a managerial role rather than a mere shepherding role um, as his father uh, gave him this preferred status. So things were going well for Joseph. Uh, He's probably hopeful about the future. I mean, we can probably resonate with that as we think about dreams and hopes that we have about our future that we've had in the past. How, you know, we want to see things go well. That's what hope is based on. That's what dreams are based on. But in Joseph's life, some storm clouds were brewing that showed that things were not always going to be this good. We see these storm clouds in the same passage in terms of the poor relationship that Joseph had with his brothers. We saw earlier that after, after Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other brothers, it says in verse 4 that when his brothers saw that their father loved um, Joseph more than any of them, they hated him. And could not speak a kind word to him. They had a very similar reaction after Joseph told them about his dreams. And so they, they really did not like Joseph at all. And so those are sort of storm clouds brewing on the horizon that show that J- Joseph's dreams may be in danger at some point in the future. And really, if we are honest with ourselves as we go through life, we have dreams in our lives, dreams about how we want things to work out. 
uh, some ideal that we want to see in some part of our life. But if we're real with ourselves, we recognize there are things that threaten those dreams. Many of us have experienced those firsthand. The storm clouds that come along, whether it's through relationships or whether it's through financial downturn or downsizing in our company or, or health challenges or, or something else, maybe it's bad decisions we've made, that cause our dreams to begin to fade away. And that's what we see happen to Joseph in the next part of this passage. So I invite you to follow along as I begin reading the passage again in verse 12. It says, Now Joseph's brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send, them, send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to them, or said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring, back, bring word back to me. Then he sent him off to the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to, the, to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming, to, coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh. And they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to, the, to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animals devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. So here we see Joseph's dreams begin to wither. Actually, they don't just wither, they come crashing down. 
Because remember, Joseph's life had been looking so promising. I mean, he had God's favor, his father's favor is looking really good for him. But now circumstances are changing a little bit. You see, his father sent him on a very perilous mission. You would think that Jacob should have recognized the hatred that his son, other sons had for Joseph and would have recognized that sending him 65 miles away from home out into the wilderness to look for his brothers is not going to be a healthy thing for Joseph. For, for some reason, Jacob doesn't recognize that. He sends Joseph out to look for his brothers. Like I said, it's about 65 miles out there, a journey of four or five days. So Joseph's going out there. And his brothers see him in the distance. I imagine it's probably because of that amazingly bright-colored uh, coat or robe that he was wearing. They saw him in the distance, recognized him, and began to come up with a murderous plot as Joseph was in the distance. They said, let's kill him. And we already know they hated him. They, didn't, they couldn't stand him. They wanted to get rid of him. So they thought, we'll kill him and make up an excuse that ferocious animals devoured him. But then one of the brothers said, well, you know, although we get rid of him, we could make some money off of him as well as we see these slave traders going by. So let's sell him into slavery. So they did. They sold him into slavery. 20 shekels of silver, the price of a common slave in that era. So they sold him into slavery. And you, you can imagine what it would have been like for Joseph. First of all, as he comes up to his brothers, he's probably all excited to see them. He's been searching for them for days. He comes up to them. They grab him. They rip off his robe. They throw him into a cistern. They hear, him talking, hear them talking about killing him or leaving him to die in the cistern. I mean, just imagine what that would be like. Uh, just, just the fear, the anger, the frustration, the just uncertainty about what's going to happen next. The feeling like, man, I had my life all together so recently and now it's just coming crashing down. And then he's sold into slavery into Egypt, a land that he doesn't know well at all. He's wondering what's going to happen next. I mean, sold in the Potiphar's household. We may know the rest of the story from the rest of Genesis, but Joseph at that point doesn't. And so you imagine, again, that uncertainty, the heartache, the anguish, the sense of loss as this dream they had had come crashing down. And I'm sure we can all resonate with that when we think of experiences in our own lives where we were so hopeful about something, but then that hope, that dream, that ideal didn't come to pass. And so that's where we're wrapping up the story of Joseph today. We're not wrapping up the message quite yet, but that's where we're wrapping up the story of Joseph. And Joseph is in uncertainty. He's sold into slavery. The dreams have come crashing down. So that leaves a question for us. When we are thrown into plan B, as Joseph was thrown into what seemed to be a plan B, how do we respond? How do we respond? And I believe that when our dreams wither, that that is a call to remember that we need to surrender to God. Dreams that wither are reminders to surrender to God. Now, we're actually called to surrender to God in everything that we do. Surrender to God means that we are laying everything before God, saying, God, I am yours. T take me, do with me what you want. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll be who you want me to be. I'll do who you want me to do. That's what we're called to live as, as Christians, a lifestyle of surrender to God, saying, God, use me, take me wherever you want me to go. It's really holding everything in our lives with open hands. We're, we're saying, God, you're free to put whatever you want in my life. You're free to take out whatever you want. If you take it out, you may give it back. You may not. Our tendency, though, is to want to control things, uh, want to hold on to things as tightly as possible. And really... I think that's an illusion that, that 
There's, we have an illusion of control. We want to control things, but realistically, we can't control everything that happens in our lives. And when, these, when our dreams shatter, when our dreams wither, that is a powerful reminder that we need to surrender to God. Because oftentimes when our dreams wither, when our ideal isn't lived up to, that shows us that our plan A is not God's plan A. And so we need to surrender to Him. But we still as humans like to be in control, don't we? Um, I'm going to share from a minute, uh, in a minute from this book. This is a book called Plan B. Um, you may recognize the, the title and the graphic uh, from the cover of this book. Uh, Pete Wilson, who wrote this book recently, um, has a website where he enables pastors or others who want to, to use the graphics, use the name of this book. And a lot of the insight that will come into this message came out of this book. I highly recommend it. We have one copy of it in our library if you'd like to check it out. But it's a great book for anyone who is facing what they feel like is a plan B in their lives when their plan A doesn't work out. But one of the things in this book that Pete Wilson talks about is this illusion of control, that we want to be in control of our lives. But he says, in reality, the greatest of all illusions is the illusion of control. When our dreams come crashing down, when things don't work out the way we want them to, that shows us that control, the idea that we can control everything in our life if we work hard enough, that really is just an illusion. In those times where dreams come crashing down, it probably feels like our life is spiraling out of control. But in reality, what that shows is simply that we are in control. It doesn't mean that God's not in control. It just means that we are not the ones in control. But we like to be in control, don't we? Uh, a little bit later in this book, uh, Pete Wilson uh, quotes from another Christian author named Peter Scazzaro. Uh, and I think what Peter Scazzaro writes resonates deeply with me and, and may with you as well. He says, I like control. I like to know where God is going, exactly what he is doing, the exact route of how we are getting there, and exactly when we will arrive. I also like to remind God of his need to behave in ways that fit with my clear ideas of him. See, we like to be in control. We, we if we have our preference, I think would want a roadmap that sh- from God that shows everything that's going to happen in our lives, how we're gonna, where we're going, how we're going to get there. But the reality is we don't have that roadmap. Our call is to follow Jesus by faith, step by step by step. And there are times when our plan A is not going to align with God's plan A. And when that happens, our call is to surrender to him and say, God, I recognize that you are in control. I'm not, but you are. And as we do that, we open ourselves up to God's work in our lives to reshape our direction and to reshape our character to make us who he wants us to be so that we live out his dream for our lives rather than living out our dream for our own lives. Let me share a couple of examples of this. How many of you have ever heard of Chuck Colson? Either raise your hand or think in your mind. Chuck Colson, a very well-known Christian author, written many books. He has a daily radio program, very influential Christian. Uh, Johnny Erickson Tata is another uh, Christian who's very influential. She speaks at many conferences. She's written nearly 50 books through her lifetime. This is a man and a woman who have deeply impacted this country and actually this entire world with the gospel. But I think about the process that God used to bring them to where they are now and influencing people for the gospel. It was not an easy road. For Chuck Colson, he, he, the road took him through prison back in the mid-70s because he, before he became a Christian, was one of the top advisors for President Nixon during the Watergate scandal. 
He was one of the men implicated in that scandal. So he spent a while in prison. During that time, he committed himself to Christ. And he basically surrendered himself to God and said, God, I am yours. Do with me what you want. But think about how his dreams that he previously had came crashing down because of bad decisions that he had made. But now through his surrender to God, God remade him, redirected his life. He's working through him now in ways that he never could have imagined then. He required that surrender to God as dreams came crashing down. Johnny Erickson Tata is kind of similar, except that her, bad, her negative circumstances weren't because of a bad decision she made, but more because of a fluke incident. When she was diving in the Chesapeake Bay when she was 17 years old, she was a vibrant young woman at that point, but she was diving into this bay, hit her head on a rock, and was paralyzed from the neck down. For the rest of her life, she's been, she's been confined to a wheelchair as a quadriplegic. But since then, God has been able to use her in amazing and amazing ways. She recounts how those first weeks and months after the accident, she went into a deep depression. She began questioning, where is God? She didn't want to live anymore. I mean, that's what it feels like sometimes when our dreams come crashing down. But then she finally reached that point of surrender, saying, God, I'm yours. I give up. Do with me what you will. And God began to rebuild her life in amazing ways to make her into the woman she is today who is influencing thousands or even millions with the gospel. I don't think that God, that she would have been able to do that had she not had to divert her life on the plan B, had she not surrendered to God. But that's what he does. He takes um, our plan Bs, that are plan Bs from our perspective, and when we surrender to him, he will work in our lives in a way that we will never understand or never fully expect to transform us to be the people who he wants us to be, to fulfill the mission he wants us to fulfill. I'm sure if we go around this room, we could probably all share stories of, of how that's worked out in our own lives. But the call when we face that plan B is to surrender to God and say, God, I'm yours. Show me what you want me to do now that my plan has come crashing down. The final thing I want to say this morning is that God is ultimately into building our character more than he is into making us happy or making us comfortable. Because many times our dreams for our lives, our plan A, has something to do with our own comfort, our own sense of security, our own sense of success. And when God takes away that plan A that we have, he's oftentimes doing it to build our character, to shape us to be more like Christ, or to move us to a place where we can be more influential for the kingdom of God. He's much more interested in building our character and drawing us closer to him than he is in us being successful here in this world. Our call is to submit to his plan A rather than trying to live out our plan A. Because our plan A is oftentimes really, it'll turn into a plan B when it comes face to face with God. I think Jesus is our ultimate model here. Think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was crucified. He knew all along the path that he was going to have to take to the cross. But he was still in anguish over thinking about crucifixion and being separated from God because of taking on the, the wrath of God for our sins. Jesus said to God, God, if it's possible, take this cup away from me, this cup of God's wrath, so that he doesn't have to undergo the suffering on the cross. But he ended that prayer by saying, Yet not my will, but yours be done. It's a prayer of surrender. And that's what we are called to do. Every time we face a dream that comes crashing down, Every time we face what seems to be a plan B, to say, God, I surrender. Not my will, but yours. Let's pray.
Our Father, we thank you that you are a God who is in control. We confess that we oftentimes think that we are in control, but Lord, we are not. And we recognize that there are circumstances in our lives that make that very clear, but we still at the same time want to be in control, Lord. But I pray that you will help us, most of all, to come to a greater faith in you, trusting that even when our plan A fails, even when we face bumps in the road or even major crises, that you are still in control, that you will never leave us, never forsake us, and that if we surrender to you, you're going to work out something that, even though we can't understand it now, will be amazing in the future. Because we know that plan B is never the end for us, but that you have something you're going to do through it. God, this morning we want to lift up Dan R. Helger. We thank you for Dan, but Lord, we know that he's going through a hard time right now. I know that he went into the hospital yesterday uh, with some kidney issues and dehydration. And God, we pray that you will sustain his life. We know that this is a plan B that he and Katie and the rest of their family and friends never would have expected or wanted. We pray that you will sustain him and that you will be at work in their family and friends to draw them close to you through this time and do your work through this challenging time. And Lord, now as we bring before you our tithes and our offerings, we pray that you will use these offerings to spread your glory and the hope that we have in Christ around our county, around Wisconsin, around this country, and around this world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.